This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I'll be your host. I appreciate you so much for tuning in to this week's episode. We've got a good one this week, episode 244, entitled The Messiah in Psalm 2. As we are continuing to work through our study of the noteworthy and significant messianic passages within the Hebrew Bible, we've arrived at the book of Psalms, and the book of Psalms has many, if not the most, amount of passages that have directly influenced the New Testament writer's understanding of Jesus as the Messiah of Israel. And so Psalm 2 is arguably one of the most important psalms within the collection, at least as far as it has left a lasting impact on the early Christians. So here's some questions I would like to explore in this week's episode. First, who are the two main subjects in Psalm 2, and why are their identities important? We'll be sure to talk about that. Second, what is the relationship between the anointed king and the God of Israel? Examining that relationship is very crucial. Third, what other important titles are used to describe God's anointed king. Within Psalm 2, we'll note that there are quite a few important titles that we need to take note of. And lastly, how did Psalm 2 leave an impression on early Christians and the writers of the New Testament? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is looking at God and the anointed king in Psalm 2. So I'll read the passage. The entirety of Psalm 2 is only 12 verses, and then I'll come back and talk about some of the highlights. So let's look at Psalm 2, starting in verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying... Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And he will speak to them in anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me. And I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron, you shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment, take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship Yahweh with reverence, and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the sun, that he not become angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's Psalm 2, verses 1 through 12. So it's quite clear in the psalm 
that we have really three parties. We have Yahweh, we have his anointed, and we have the kings of the earth, which are defined as the nations. So we have Gentiles that seem to be quite upset at the creator God, Yahweh, and the fact that Yahweh has announced a different king, namely his anointed. So when we look here at this particular anointed figure, we can see in verse 2 that he is someone who is set alongside Yahweh. He is someone who is distinct from Yahweh. He is called his anointed, which is the Mashiach. He is the anointed king. In the Greek translation, this figure is the Christ, and it is God's Christ. And I've recently pointed out to some other people that when it says Yahweh and his anointed one, the singular pronoun his, that is used to describe the anointed one, of course refers back to Yahweh, indicating that Yahweh is a single person. Yahweh is only one person. This is a Unitarian God with the Unitarian God's anointed king. Now this king is described with some different language throughout the passage. We can see, of course, in verse 2 that he is called the anointed. He is God's anointed. He is the one that has been anointed for this royal purpose. And so he has that title, the Messiah. But in verse 7, he is called the Son of God. Yahweh says to this particular king that you are my son, today I have become your father. Now this is not a reference to the birth of this king because this king has been alive since verse 2. And of course in the previous verse God had installed this king on Mount Zion, the holy mountain. So the establishment of this king, the installation of him for his royal service for his kingly rule is to declare him to be the son of God. And that's going to be really important because we're going to see that the New Testament writers pick up this particular language of describing Jesus with this phrase, you are my son, which indicates that he has been publicly designated as the son of God for his royal role. Now, we mentioned there, of course, in verse 6, that he is called the king. He is called my king, thereby indicating that, again, he is distinct from Yahweh. And he's called the son again in verse 12, but we already knew that. We already knew that he was the son. Now, if he is the son of Yahweh, then by definition, that makes Yahweh the father. If Yahweh has a son, and the son is the son of Yahweh, then Yahweh is the father. That's why in verse 7, it is indicating that you are my son, today I have become your father. So Yahweh is the father, and the anointed king is the son. Now, in Psalm 2's original context, the way that the earliest readers would have read it, and these were the Israelites, later the Jews, they would have understood this as a reference to the Israelite king, perhaps to David, but specifically to the Israelite king. Now granted, there's going to be an ultimate Israelite king, a climactic Israelite king, to where this language that we see in verse 8 of receiving the nations as their inheritance and the very ends of the earth as their possession, that of course indicates 
the widespread rule of this particular king that expands far beyond Jerusalem, Zion, the Holy Mountain. It is worldwide in its scope, and that, of course, is something that is promised to the Messiah. But the Messiah in this passage is called that. He's called God's anointed. He is called the Son of God. He is called the King. And then he's just straight up called the Son. I do think it's interesting, too, that the level of worship that is offered to these two figures, that is to Yahweh and to the Son, is actually distinct, despite the fact that they both do receive worship. So in verse 11, we are to worship Yahweh with reverence and rejoice with trembling, but we are also to give homage to the Son. So these are both verbs involving worship. They're different verbs involving a distinction between the two objects of worship. And it's quite clear that the two objects of worship are distinguished by different sentences, different language, and of course, they are, of course, different persons. But the Son is worshipped. This human Israelite king is worshipped, and the psalm commands the readers, and even the nations, the kings of the earth, to worship and give homage to this son. Whether that's just the bowing of the knee or kissing the son, that, of course, is an act of worship. So human kings can be worshipped if God says that they are worthy of worship. It is not true, nor is it self-evident, that worship belongs to Yahweh alone. Especially when Yahweh says that you need to give homage to the Son. So, those are some of the interesting points that we have there in Psalm 2. Now, much of this language was highly influential on the early Christians. And we're going to see that. And Psalm 2 has many lasting impacts on the writers of the New Testament and early Christians, and there's really no way that we can just go through all of them. So I decided I would pick three of the most prominent ones to discuss in this week's episode. So I might not be discussing your favorite one, but I thought these were some of the most noteworthy and influential ways in which Psalm 2 has made an impact. And we can see and demonstrate this impact in the beliefs and the practices of early Christians. So let's move to our second point, point number two, the use of Psalm 2 in the early church. So in the book of Acts, which was written by Luke, the author of the Gospel of Luke, we can see that he tells us this story of the early Christians drawing upon Psalm 2 in order to discuss the fact that they have been persecuted and to pray to God and to discuss Jesus, which seems to be exactly what the opening few verses of Psalm 2 are exactly about. So let's look at this particular passage. So this is in Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 19. It's a little lengthy passage, but I think we'll get the sense as to what is taking place. So Acts chapter 4, verse 19 says, But Peter and John answered and said to them, this is to the authorities, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you, rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. 
When they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom the miracle of healing had been performed. When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priest and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. By who the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in the city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, O Lord, take note of their threats, and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence, while you extend your hand to heal, and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. That's Acts chapter 4, verses 19 through 30. So it's quite clear what has taken place here. Peter and John did a miracle. They were arrested. They were harassed by the authorities, which were Jewish authorities, by the way. They were eventually released. They came back together with the early Christians, and they recounted all that had taken place, and they respond in prayer. And in prayer, they acknowledge the two persons that are mentioned in Psalm 2, God and his Christ. In fact, Psalm 2 verses 1 through 2 are quoted directly from the Greek version of the Old Testament in Acts 4 verses 25 through 26. Hopefully you were able to see that. And what's interesting is that the early Christians seem to have given us an identity as to whom the original characters in Psalm 2 actually are. So in Psalm 2, we have Yahweh and his anointed. And Yahweh and his anointed are now the Lord and his Christ. Who is the Lord? Well, the Lord is the one to whom they're praying. In verse 24 of Acts 4, it says, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. So they acknowledge that the Lord is you, the one person, who is the singular creator of the heavens and the earth and everything that is in them. Okay? Of course, Jesus is someone who is in heaven. And so if the Lord is the one who made the heaven and the earth and all that is in them, then, of course, the Lord made Jesus. And so God is quite clearly the person to whom they're praying God is identified as the creator, the only creator. And Jesus is the one who was killed. He was crucified. And in verse 27, it says that the people gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus. Of course, we have that singular pronoun there indicating that the Lord is a single person. If the Lord's holy servant is your holy servant, then that indicates that the Lord is a single person. 
And then it goes on and it says, whom you anointed. Clearly drawing on that language from Psalm 2 and indicating that the one who is anointed has been anointed by another person. By whom? By God. And who is this God? He is Yahweh and he is the sole creator. What's interesting in this passage is that the language of the Gentiles raging and the people's devising futile things, which is meant to be a sense of parallelism in Psalm 2, is effectively meant to refer to any group of people that are opposed to the purposes of God and his Messiah, which from the perspective of early Christians would mean anyone who's opposed to the early Christian movement. And when the early Christians are describing here in their prayer who these kings of the earth and the Gentiles and the peoples are, they lump together people who don't exactly fit some of those characteristics. We have Herod, okay? Of course, we have Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, the people that put Jesus to death. And so all those groups of people, which some of them are clearly Jews, the peoples of Israel and Herod in some sense, they are lumped together into this group. It's an us versus them sort of mentality. And of course, the prayer is that the Lord should take note of their threats and acknowledge that he needs to heal and extend his hand, namely your hand. There's another singular pronoun indicating that the God to whom they're praying is a single person. It is the Father. And this Father has a holy servant. It is your holy servant, Jesus. Jesus is the servant of the Creator God. So Psalm 2 has impacted the early church in some very significant ways. What we can see is that the distinction between Yahweh and his Christ has been maintained. It is quite clear, and there is no confusion between the two. They're not praying to Jesus. They're not saying Jesus is the creator. They're not saying Jesus participated in creation. They're not saying that two or three persons participated in creation. Yahweh is the one person who created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. That's one of the ways in which Psalm 2 has been quite impactful. And I think that the way that we can see this lasting impact in Acts chapter 4 has not been given its full attention by interpreters. I think we can learn a lot from that, especially since the book of Acts was probably one of the later New Testament books that was actually written indicating this was a theology held and maintained towards the end of the first century. Let's move to our third point, point number three, Son of God as a title for the Messiah. Now we had mentioned in Psalm 2, especially verses 6 through 7, that the installation of God's king, that is to install him for his role, his royal duties, in order to be the regent, the king, it is likened to giving him the title Son of God. Whenever he is installed, he receives this particular title, almost as if a ruler gets installed and we say this person is the regent, this person is now the president, this person is now the prime minister. They've now received that particular title. And so the early Christians, in fact, all four of the New Testament Gospels will draw upon this particular language in their own ways 
in order to designate that at the baptism of Jesus, when he was baptized with water by John the Baptist, and the Holy Spirit came out of heaven to anoint Jesus, that this was the public ceremony indicating that God is announcing that Jesus is Israel's Messiah, Jesus is the Christ, he is the Son of God. So we can look at any of the four New Testament Gospels, because they all make this point, but I just figured we'd just pick Matthew. We could pick anyone, why not pick Matthew? So in Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 16, it says, After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him, and behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke have all very similar depictions of this particular story. John's gospel is a little bit different. It actually has John the Baptist confessing that he on whom I saw the Holy Spirit descend, this is the Son of God. So John the Baptist makes that confession. To our Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we actually have the narrator telling us what actually has taken place. But the sense is that Jesus, as the anointed one, has of course been baptized with water. He's been anointed publicly with the Holy Spirit. And we have the verifying voice from heaven, which is what we saw in Psalm 2. The voice said that you are my son. And the voice from heaven, of course, in the Gospels says, this is my son, or this is my beloved son, or my son, the beloved. It is clearly echoing and drawing on the language from Psalm 2, while adding to it a couple of extra features that are noteworthy, but not super relevant for what we're talking about right now. And so this is important. It indicates that Psalm 2 was drawn upon in order to indicate that the public ceremony indicating that Jesus has been anointed for his role as the Messiah was something that took place at the baptism. And this is why the baptism of Jesus is the very first thing that we see about Jesus in his adult career in all four Gospels. All four Gospels believe that in order for Jesus to have a Messianic ministry, he has to be publicly declared to be the Messiah. We have to know who this person is. And of course, God has to announce and say, hey, this guy right here, this guy Jesus, this is the person whom I'm anointing. And he's not just the anointed one, he is the anointed king. The Messiah is the anointed king. The Christ is the anointed king of God's kingdom. And he bears this title, Son of God. The Son of God is the title for the Israelite king, and of course for the Messiah. So we can see that Christ, Messiah, and Son of God are all synonymous titles referring to the same role. Let's move to our fourth and final point. Point number four is that Jesus shares his inheritance with his followers. So there's an interesting passage in the book of Revelation, in the letters to seven churches, to where Psalm 2 is quoted and drawn upon to refer to Jesus, but Jesus actually uses this particular passage to talk about his followers. And the way that he does it, I think, is very fascinating. Let's look at this particular passage. In Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 26, it says, He who overcomes 
and he who keeps my deeds until the end. To him I will give authority over the nations. He will shepherd them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken into pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. That's Revelation 2, verses 26 through 27. So this is Jesus speaking. He's speaking to this particular church, but by inference, he's also speaking to the original readers of the book of Revelation. Those were the members of all the seven churches. They would read the message to each individual church, and of course, the message applied to them, and of course, it applies to Christian readers today. So Jesus says that, look, if you conquer, if you're steadfast, if you overcome, and you keep my deeds until the end, this person, he's going to give authority over the nations. Now, this is alluding to Psalm 2, verse 8, to where Yahweh said to the Son, Ask of me, and I will give to you the nations as your inheritance. So what's interesting is that in Psalm 2, this is something that Yahweh was going to give to the Messiah. And here we see that this is something that the Messiah is going to share with his faithful conquering followers, indicating that the Messiah has already received these things from the Father. And of course, he mentions that later in the passage. Now, in verse 27, we have an interesting point about translation. Because in the Greek of Revelation 2.27, it says that he will shepherd them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken into pieces. And that, of course, is drawing on Psalm 2.9. Now, if you're familiar with Psalm 2.9, you can look in the Hebrew. You can see that, wait a minute. The language there is not of shepherding, which is a nurturing act of a ruler. David was a shepherd king, but to shepherd someone is a loving, nurturing, caring sort of behavior. What we can read in Psalm 2.9 is that you will break them with a rod of iron. That's a much more violent image. And that's because in Hebrew, the verb to break is the verb ra'ah. But when the Septuagint translator came along, he saw this not so much as a negative image, but as a positive image. And so the Septuagint translator of Psalm 2.9 used the Greek verb pimeno, which means to shepherd. Okay, And shepherding, again, involves love and nurturing and caring. It's what a shepherd does for the sheep. You don't break the sheep with a rod of iron. The rod of the shepherd is something that gives comfort. We know that from Psalm 23. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So in the New Testament, when this passage gets quoted, when Psalm 2.9 gets quoted in Revelation 2.27, the Greek version is used. And so it indicates that the followers of Jesus will shepherd the nations with a rod of iron. And this is significant because Jesus is described later in the book of Revelation, particularly in chapter 12, as the shepherd of the nations. He is the person who has this shepherding leadership role to where he guides, he cares for, he loves, and he nurtures the nations. But what's interesting is that Jesus is sharing that with his followers. And of course, Jesus tells us here at the end of Revelation 2.27, 
that he has received authority from his father, which is exactly what we saw in Psalm 2. Yahweh, the father, shares the inheritance with the son. And now the son is sharing that authority and his own role and prerogative to shepherd the nations. He's sharing that with his followers. So the Psalm 2 impact is still very powerful. Here in Revelation chapter 2, God and the Messiah are still distinguished. It is quite clear that Yahweh is the one who is superior to the Messiah because the Messiah has received this authority from Yahweh. And of course, Yahweh is described as the Father. And not just the Father, it's my Father. Jesus has a Father. His Father is Yahweh. And Jesus, of course, is able to share this with his followers in the same way that Yahweh has shared the inheritance with his Son. So those are some of the most impactful ways that Psalm 2 has been used by early Christians. We can see that they are continuing to maintain the distinction between Yahweh and his Messiah. They still understand that Yahweh is the true God, the creator, the one to whom you pray, and the one that raised Jesus from the dead. They understand that Yahweh has acknowledged publicly that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. We see that early Christians drew upon Psalm 2 and Psalm 2's distinctive language of the Christ, the Messiah, as the King and also as the Son of God. Son of God there being a title for the anointed King. And we can also see that as God has shared the inheritance with the Son, as we see in Psalm 2, verses 8 through 9, Jesus in the book of Revelation shares his authority with his followers in Revelation 2, 26 through 27. So those are some of the most impactful ways that Psalm 2 has left its impression upon the writers of the New Testament. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Please join us next week as we continue to work through these psalms and to highlight the ways in which they prophesy about the Messiah and, of course, distinguish the Messiah from Israel's God. We'll be looking next week at Psalm 8. Psalm 8 as a quite influential impact that it's left on the New Testament writers. So please look forward to our next episode. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us as we aim to promote the sound truths of the oneness and unity of God and the humanity of Jesus. You can support us for absolutely free by subscribing on iTunes and YouTube, by giving us an honest review, and by sharing your favorite episodes with your friends. If you'd like to offer a donation, please check out the link in the description of this episode for a link to PayPal. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, please take care.